This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas. I started Self Work four and a half years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you who might already be very interested in psychological or emotional issues, maybe you're in therapy, but you'd like another perspective. To those of you who've just been diagnosed with depression or anxiety or perhaps some other kind of mental illness, or you're just having mental health issues, you don't feel as good as you want to feel, and you're looking for answers. But also to those of you who would say to your friends, you know, I'd never darken the door of one of those therapists, but you're just curious enough or despairing enough to listen in. So thanks for being here to all of you. Before we get started on today's episode, I have something I'm absolutely thrilled to tell you about. I was selected as a teacher on depression by Himalaya Learning, which is a fairly new audio learning platform that provides an extensive library of courses straight to your ears from the world's greatest minds, like Malcolm Gladwell, Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, Linda Hill, Barbara Corcoran, and more. I've got a special offer just for you. If you use the link himalaya.com slash depression and himalaya is h-i-m-a-l-a-y-a himalaya.com slash depression you'll get a 14-day free trial for all the courses on himalaya you just have to use the promo code overcoming when you check out and then after that 14-day trial you'll get a choice of whether to choose a monthly subscription or an annual subscription or decide not to do it, but you'll get to check it out for quite a long period of time. In my course, I talk about depression, all kinds of depression. You can expect compassionate, common sense kind of things from me. There's about two hours of material, but it's divided up into 10 different segments. So you can listen to one at a time if you like. I also talk about perfectly hidden depression there. Of course, my own passion I'm excited, actually, to listen to it myself. It's a safe, secure way to educate yourself about depression and its many forms, and then also to find out what to begin to do about it. You know, here on the podcast, I always talk about that. So again, it's Himalaya.com slash depression. That's the link. And then the special promo code is overcoming. I hope you'll join me. We've got a different kind of episode today. I spent a lot more time on the listener email because of its tragic poignancy. So today's episode, sponsored by BetterHelp, covers two topics, each one of them very important to understand. The first topic for today is what positive psychologists call languishing, as it's touted really as the major emotion that we've all had during the pandemic. What is languishing? It's defined as a lack of well-being, feeling apathetic, listless, having what's called ennui or sort of a a boredom, apathy again. Or as another definition put it, an absence of a positive emotion about life. That's different from depression. Researchers, especially those who are in the positive psychology camp, talk about this difference from depression, and that's where it gets a little complicated for me. But I'm trying to explain it to myself, and in so doing, I'll try to explain it to you as best I understand it. And we'll talk about the much more positive opposite of languishing, which is flourishing. And 
will identify the five pillars of flourishing in life, again, that positive psychologists talk about. The listener email is particularly poignant. It's from a woman whose child died a decade ago, and her grief doesn't seem to be remitting in any way. I'll answer her not only using my words, but using the words of other mothers who've lost their children. So I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to Self Work if you've never been here before. Thanks to BetterHelp for the sponsorship really helps support this program. So sit back and relax, and let's learn about positive psychology as well as languishing and flourishing. When I was in my last year of graduate school, I was still in weekly supervision with an absolutely wonderful psychologist named Ricky. She taught me so much, and I trusted her judgment and her words. What I'd noticed was that most of my fellow students had adopted a certain psychological theory to base how they were going to approach clients. One was going to be a family systems therapist. Another was going to use the object relations theory to guide her therapeutic decisions. I'd studied all the theories and ways of understanding human struggles, just like the rest of them, and I'd made A's in the classes. But when I was in the room with a client, my brain didn't really think about how their story would fit into a theoretical structure. And I decided that that was a problem. It was a weakness of mine, that I should be a disciple of one theory or another. You didn't want to be eclectic. That was a bad word back in the 1990s for a therapist. So what I said to Ricky was this, and she just smiled. I explained, I don't really do what the others are doing. When I'm with a client, I like to first focus on what I see as their strengths and think about how to develop those. She just looked at me and said, Margaret, theories are just that, theories. There's nothing wrong with the way you're doing it. Nothing. Theories do offer a scaffolding of sorts for understanding, so they're important, but they are ideas. I guess what I realized now was that without knowing it, I was leaning toward the positive psychology camp. So what is positive psychology? Peterson said in 2008, positive psychology is a scientific study of what makes life most worth living. To push this brief description a bit further, positive psychology is a scientific approach to studying human thoughts, feelings, and behavior with a focus on strengths instead of weaknesses, building the good in life instead of repairing the bad. And then Peterson goes on to say, taking the lives of average people, I'm not sure what he means by average people, up to great instead of focusing solely on moving those who are struggling up to normal. This school of thought was founded by a man named Martin Seligman, who disliked psychology's sole focus on symptoms and trauma and illness. When he became president of the American Psychological Association in 1998, he had a vast influence over research on these positive experiences. Now, he'd been a researcher who discovered learned helplessness, which was a huge factor in depression. That's when you feel as if there's nothing you can do, so you act helplessly, when actually there are ways of decreasing your stress or pain that you're not seeing due to past experiences of actually being helpless. So it's learned helplessness, if that makes sense. And it's very true, depressed people often suffer from learned helplessness. So Seligman was well-respected in both the clinical and research world. And years later, there are now hundreds of studies on things like well-being, resilience, happiness, gratitude, and compassion, experiences and traits that positive psychologists and their research indicate your life would be far more fulfilling if you create those ways of being in yourself. 
So back in graduate school, I guess I was moving in this direction and still do in many ways, although I think I'm probably balancing between the two camps. Now comes along a sociologist and researcher, Corey Keyes, that's K-E-Y-E-S. He came up with the term languishing. What he says is that languishing, that's anguish with an L on the front, is actually more prevalent than major depressive disorder. It's defined as a state in which an individual is devoid of or lacks positive emotion toward life. You're not functioning well either psychologically or socially. And again, he says, you have not been depressed during the past year. Now, this is where I think it gets a little strange. And I read several articles trying to describe the difference between languishing and a more moderate depressive disorder called persistent depressive disorder, which used to be called dysthymia. That's less severe than major depression, but it has chronic fatigue, foggy thinking, sadness. So is it really a difference between what a positive psychologist would call it and a more classic psychologist would call it, languishing versus depression? But I also realize that I can imagine that someone can be dissatisfied with life without being depressed. When I was writing this episode, I actually came up with an example, but I'll give it now. You can have a plant that is still alive, but it's not thriving. It's not flourishing, right? So just being alive, maybe from the positive psychology point of view, is not enough. Adam Grant, who's what's called an organizational psychologist, wrote this recently in the New York Times. Languishing is the neglected middle child of mental health. It's the void between depression and flourishing, the absence of well-being. You don't have symptoms of mental illness, but you're not the picture of mental health either. You're not functioning at full capacity. It dulls your motivation, disrupts your ability to focus, and triples the odds that you'll cut back on work. And again, he says it's a big risk factor for mental illness. I like the idea of the space between depression and then flourishing, and it reminds me of Andrew Solomon's quote of the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's vitality. So flourishing would also be vitality. You know, I watched a funny SNL sketch on the conversation of a post-pandemic cocktail party this morning. It had been on over the weekend, and basically people were making statements about what their life had been like during the worst of COVID times, rather than stating what was reality for most of us. So they were making up a bunch of stuff about how great it had been, and they were stuck talking about vaccinations instead of saying, I didn't do anything this year, or my kids drove me crazy, I got to where I didn't care about their school or anything which is what reality was, right? The pandemic caused many of us to lose our sense of meaning and purpose. And positive psychology would say that that was, and perhaps still is, one of the most damaging things that happened during the pandemic. So where is the brighter side of this? We're going to talk about the five pillars of well-being that positive psychology says must be present for you to flourish. But first, we're going to hear from BetterHelp. Again, BetterHelp is an online therapy service that so many people have found very helpful. And in fact, in this clip, I read a testimonial that someone sent me. BetterHelp has now been a sponsor of Self Work for a few months, and I've been hearing how pleased you are with their services. I couldn't be more excited about that, as by now you know I'm a huge believer myself in the power of therapy. What is BetterHelp? 
It's an online therapy service that has earned the number one ranking for the quality of their service to their consumers. When you contact them, you are offered several different licensed professional therapists to choose from, all that have been vetted by BetterHelp. You can have sessions via video, text, or phone. And I found, because of course I checked it out before recommending it to you, that each therapist was very available, literally a text away and made some of the same therapeutic suggestions to me that I'd offer myself as a therapist. Here's an excerpt from a listener who wrote in, I'm a 23-year-old living in Brazil. I'm only writing this message in order to express my gratitude towards you and your podcast. Having anxiety disorder, I always felt like I needed therapy, but I was too anxious to start it. With self-work, not only I've learned some valuable insights about dealing with my condition, but also the basics of how therapy sessions work, which allowed me to finally get some courage to start it. With the coronavirus pandemic, I'd also been concerned about attending personal sessions, but then I learned about better help in your podcast, and it sounded just perfect for what I needed. I've been getting online counseling from BetterHelp for six weeks now, and I feel like it's been helping me a lot. That's just so wonderful to hear. And now, BetterHelp has a special offer for you. 10% off the first month of sessions if you use this link. Trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork. That's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork. I'm never more honored than hearing someone sought therapy after listening to selfwork. And if selfwork is helping you, maybe BetterHelp is your next step. So again, positive psychologists would say that there are five pillars that are necessary to create the opposite of languishing, which is flourishing. Remembering that a person doesn't have to suffer the symptoms of depression to not feel that their life is full and meaningful. So now we're back to Seligman. He's the one who identified these five elements that are important for happiness, and here they are. Positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and achievement. And what Adam Grant was saying in his New York Times article is that the leg of the stool, so to speak, that most suffered during the pandemic was engagement. We just haven't been engaged, and now we're trying to recreate that. So if you have all five legs of that stool, your stool is sturdy, and you can be stable and happy and flourish. So I'm going to read you each element and what it looks like in everyday life, but then, of course, per normal, I'll add my two bits in. Okay. Positive emotions. These come from pleasurable and or interesting activities like watching a good comedy, solving a puzzle, eating good food, watching a sunrise. Usually those generate feelings of contentment, relaxation, joy, and positive emotions neutralize negative emotions. Even your memory of something that brought a lot of joy or happiness or contentment can combat more negative emotions. It also boosts your health and promotes creativity. So positive psychologists would say you can increase your happiness by learning to spend some time in the space of positive emotion. Now here come my two bits. So this may sound easy, just think or feel more positively, right? What is that famous song from The Sound of Music, when the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember my favorite things and then I don't feel so bad? Well, again, maybe that's a little oversimplified for some of you. But what positive psychologists would think, that if you focus on the positive, even if it's very small at first, you can begin to shift into a better space of flourishing. Then there's engagement. 
When one becomes so absorbed in an activity that the sense of time is lost. I will tell you that when I'm writing one of these episodes or a blog post, I definitely, the time just goes by so quickly. My dad used to listen to symphonic music, or he also liked John Philip Sousa, who was, of course, the March King, which was always odd. But he would just put his head back in his chair and listen to music and just lose himself. You can do it with music, dancing, athletics, hobbies, sewing, anything that keeps you engaged. But you have to identify what your strengths are and your talents are or your virtues. And then that's what you're going to get lost in when you are engaged in something that's a reflection of your strengths. You know, I often ask clients to name their strengths or talents, things they know they do well or they are proud of, and they sometimes look just blankly at me. Seligman would say that this isn't as much about depression as it is not recognizing the importance of having that one thing in your life, of being engaged with something. And if you take a few minutes to write down one strength, two strengths, talents, what virtues you admire, then again, I would say this is about living those virtues, living out those talents, doing something that you get lost in. The third leg of the stool, or the pillar, as Selimun would say, are relationships that are satisfying. We're very social by nature, humans. There's just really no substitute for what a good relationship can do for you. Now, this one I have a little more trouble making distinct from depression, since isolation is so much a part, or can be so much of a part, of depression. I remember a study that was done in Great Britain years ago. They asked people who were living alone to count the number of people they'd actually come into contact with in a day, even if it was one person. And then they had them take a happiness inventory. There was a high positive correlation between the number of people you actually came into contact with and greater happiness. I don't care if you said hello to the grocery clerk. That counted. And what was also fascinating was that even if you only came in contact with one, that that made a significant difference and how happy you were. This was also very difficult during the pandemic, but I have had people tell me that their relationships that they did have became deeper. So now is the time as we dig out of this, or begin to dig out of it, to make sure that you've got relationships in your life, that you're connected, that can be so important. I know this is hard for people who say that you know they have social anxiety. I have some social anxiety, but again, if you look for that person who may be just as socially anxious as you are, that can be helpful. The fourth leg of the stool or the pillar is meaning. And that means dedicating yourself to something greater than you. Religion, a social cause, community action, or a professional goal. You're going to feel happier when you feel that you're working toward a goal or a value. Now, in my work, I've called this an awareness of congruence between your internal belief system and your external actions. What you care about or think is important or valuable, the kind of person you want to be, if it's directly reflected in your actions or what you do with your life, you're going to be happier. This is very similar to engagement, but when I hear the word engagement, I think more like it's an energy. When I think of meaning, I think it's broader than you, broader than your life. Now, not all of us have jobs that fit our values, but your work ethic can fit your values, or being a friend to coworkers can fit your values. A woman I saw years ago worked in a chicken plant, which I thought perhaps she'd come to tell me how terrible it was. She'd lost a couple of parts in her fingers, in fact, but she actually loved her job. 
She was known throughout the plant for her laughter and kindness. She'd come to see me because of sexual trauma in her past that she'd never revealed. She was looking for a relationship. I've never forgotten her. She created meaning in her life. Many of us would look at her life and think, oh, goodness, that's a hard life. And she did have a hard life, but she created meaning. The fifth pillar is accomplishment. Striving for success is important for a sense of well-being and happiness. You can certainly be humble and you want to be humble, but you can have a sense of fulfillment of your accomplishments. Here are my two bits. So many people equate wealth with success, and having money makes life a hell of a lot easier in so many ways. But I've seen for myself that having money doesn't ensure happiness, as many of the very wealthiest clients I've seen are miserable, chasing after more money or more fame, feeling as if they weren't worthy if it was family money, not trusting others, people sucking up to them all the time. I realize in my own life, I've defined success differently with almost every decade. What I thought it looked like in my 20s isn't at all what I think about now. So how would you define accomplishment? What makes you proud? If nothing, there's something wrong. You're either carrying around shame or if you've absorbed highly damaging messages from abusive people in your life. So I'd ask each one of you to give that some thought. How has your definition of success or accomplishment changed through the years? I know mine, I really wanted to be well-known as a singer, (laughs) but now I have a much simpler definition of success. I care more about the kind of legacy I'm leaving. What has my life stood for? For example, the message about perfectly hidden depression is one of those. Just being a caring person is another. So how has your definition of accomplishment or success changed? What would that look like for you? And that's the thought I leave you with. The listener email is a difficult one to hear. It's from a woman who's trying to survive the death of her child. Hi, Dr. Margaret. I just want you to know I really appreciate your podcast, and I listen to every single one that you make. Ten years ago, I buried my nine-year-old, and he was pretty autistic. I guess one of my big questions is, how do I find happiness and anything anymore when I feel like the one thing that I want, I can never have, which is my son back. I I guess I don't know what to focus on other than clearing the clutter of myself. This has affected me cognitively, and I'm very scatterbrained and have been for the last 10 years, and really would just like to feel normal and not so empty inside. How do you find joy when the one thing that brought you joy is gone? Thank you. I first want to answer this by using a former episode where I talked to a local woman who began a support group here called Parents Left Behind after losing her daughter, Cameron. Here's Dr. Susan Averett talking about her own grief journey. And you kind of know the second that it happens, you feel your heart rip open and you know that everything's changed and and you're just never the same again. And Mm -hmm. so we we call it a rebuilding. You spend your time rebuilding your life after the death of your child because the life you knew beforehand is gone right it's it's uh, irrevocable it's unalterable right. at that point unfathomable and then just dramatic and definitive mm-hmm. i want to make sure the listeners understand that um, certainly as a therapist i can't 
have experienced everything that my patients have experienced. I have not experienced this myself, but I have tried to help many couples who have lost children through miscarriage or stillbirth or an accident or an illness or suicide, whatever. And there is something about the look in those parents' eyes that there are no words that I can say to help them with that. The pain is, is excruciating, and certainly I think the thing that mental health or therapists have to offer is certainly just a space where they can express that freely because it is so difficult to find that space in that environment in their normal everyday life. Perhaps at first they can express it, but after the loss has been maybe months away or years away, people don't understand that you are still as you say, rebuilding your life. Right. And that, unfortunately, people want to think that grief goes away in six months. And this kind of grief certainly, in my experience, it's only just being processed at that point. Right. I mean, you spend the rest of your life grieving. Mm-hmm. You are a griever now. Mm-hmm. That is one of the roles that your life has given you. You're a griever, and you always will be. If you want to hear more from Dr. Averett, that's actually episode 90, and it will be in the show notes. Now, her words may sound negative, but all the parents I've worked with who've lost a child say the same thing. Their life is never the same. And as Susan said, you're constantly in rebuild mode. In an article in HuffPost, Sandy Peckinpah, another grieving mother, recommends journaling. One sentence to one paragraph to one page at a time was her savior. Her 16-year-old son, Garrett, had died from bacterial meningitis. One day, he came home with a headache, and the next day... He was dead. I'm going to quote her. I used to believe the cliche, everything happens for a reason. Again, this is Sandy Peckinpah. But with this kind of tragedy, it seems to be reversed. When a tragedy like this happens, it can be the starting place to give it reason and relevance. When you recognize this, it's the moment your grieving will shift. Imagine that. What would it feel like? I used to fantasize and picture my life without the pain by writing out that very question. What would it be like to feel peace around Garrett's death? I would visualize myself without the veil of sorrow and allow the comfort of happiness to flow in. And for a moment, I could feel it. As time went on, I was able to reach that peaceful feeling more frequently. I had the power within the pages of my journal to compartmentalize my sorrow. Once you're aware of what it feels like, you'll be able to access it more easily. So, I would say... You start with just a tiny little glimmer of happiness and let it coexist beside your grief. I think Susan would agree with this. Although it's a constant rebuilding, and as she says, you're now a griever, your pain can be very gradually compartmentalized, giving it a shape and a safe place for it to live without completely sabotaging your joy in the moment. I'd also look for a grief group in your area, and I've included a link in the show notes to the best grief recovery groups online. And one more thought I'd leave with you. My grieving patients who've lost loved ones have told me that at times, the possibility of not feeling their grief as intensely as they do, what they fear is losing the connection with their son or a daughter, husband or mom. They almost fear giving up the intensity of the grief, as if that would be an abandonment. Their lives must not be happy even for an instant. So it's giving yourself permission to let that tiny glimmer 
of happiness begin to exist in you, coexisting with your grief. I definitely believe, because I've seen it in parents' eyes, that a child's death changes them forever. But how closely you hold your grief seems important to consider. I hope these thoughts are helpful. Thank you so much for being here. It means very, very much to me. And thank you for your ratings and reviews on Amazon for the book Perfectly Hidden Depression or wherever you listen to self-work. You can reach me at drmargaretrutherford.com. My email is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. And I love that you're part of this program. And I'm very grateful for you sharing it with others. Thank you again. Take very, very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret. And this has been Self-Work.